Pray with me one more time if you would. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the hope that we have that's not like the world thinks of hope. Our hope is a confidence that there is resurrection because there has been resurrection in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for this great promise and for this great certainty, this great hope in that sense. Encourage us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of the most godly people I know are married. And some of the most ungodly people I know are married. Some of the most godly people I know are single. And some of the most ungodly people I know are single. So, I have to conclude that the key to honoring Christ is not tied to marital status. The key to honoring Christ is to take Christ at His word. He says, if you believe in me, though you die, you will live, because He's the resurrected one. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened by sin and the demands of the law, and I will give you rest. So the key to honoring Christ is to take Him at His word and to trust in Him. And and then having trusted in Him, we want to follow Him. We want to do what He says. Not because that makes us Christians, but because we are Christians. That's the key. It has nothing to do with our marital status. Having said that, Jesus does care about marital status so much so as to address it. And so He talks about marriage and the goodness of marriage. He talks about divorce. He talks about singleness. And so if you have a Bible, today we're going to look at Matthew 19, the 19th chapter of Matthew's gospel account. And we're going to learn from Jesus about singleness, Christian singleness. So he's already talked about marriage. We looked at that in detail. He already talked about divorce. We looked at that in some detail. I would commend those two studies to you, not because of anything wonderful that I had to say about them, uh, but because but because Jesus really does say important things, uh, and they were encouraging things that we looked at the last couple of weeks. Today it's singleness, and it's in chapter 19, verse 10, where we read these words. The disciples said to him, to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry The case with a man and his wife was regarding the fact that you can't do flippant divorce and honor God. So we looked at that in some, in some detail. It was very, very, very popular at the time when Jesus is addressing those who inquired for no-fault divorce, casual divorce. If you don't like the food on the table, you could divorce your wife. Divorce, 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 based upon the way you feel, based upon the way you don't feel. It was very flippant, and Jesus addresses that rather clearly. No, that, that's not appropriate. There are causes, but that would not be one of them, or those would not be basis. Okay, so the disciples, and some people throw them under the bus for this, but I'm not going to throw them under the bus. I actually think, though they're not perfect, they're onto something when they say, it is better not to marry. Right? If, if marriage is, is supposed to be lasting apart from radical things happening, till death do us part and, and two sinners are saying, I do, my conclusion, if I'm one of these disciples, is be better to stay single. I, I, I don't think that's wrong headed, 
Might be, but I don't read it that way. I think it's pretty reasonable. Uh, at least they've been paying attention, <laughs> right? And then verse 11 says, But he, Jesus, said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying. And I think this saying is the saying they just made at the end of verse 10. It is better not to marry. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So apparently, there are some who can't receive it, that they're compelled to get married, driven to be married, but there are some who can receive it, and it's been given to them to receive it, presumably, and I don't think it's presumably in a bad way, given to them by God, especially in light of what the Apostle Paul will say. Pretty, pretty fascinating, pretty straightforward, pretty simple. There are people who get married, there are people who don't get married. Pretty straightforward. And then Jesus gives an illustration of this. An illustration of three different eunuchs. Lessons from eunuchs. I think we should do a marketing campaign in Omaha. Come to Omaha Bible Church sermon series. Lessons from eunuchs. <laughs> I mean, where else can you go in Omaha to hear this today? I, I don't know. I don't think you can. And and. As an aside, I think this is why it's a good idea to do verse by verse, book by book, line by line studies, because I never would talk about this. Um, this is not going to be my candidating sermon, <laughs> the next church I'm going to, okay? But it's going to be true, appropriate for his day, maybe by extension appropriate for us. He illustrates the point, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. So born with a, 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 not a, a compelling sex drive, in other words. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And that's where you should have a squished up face like, ugh. That's unfortunate first century reality, either because of punishment or because of your servitude working with women, as in a wife or many wives. How can you trust them? You can trust them if they've been, become eunuchs. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that last one, based upon what Jesus is going to say, um, I don't think we have to take it literally. Um, they've just simply been able to devote themselves. Uh, they haven't been compelled. They can manage themselves in such a way uniquely to focus only on the kingdom of heaven that seems to be what he has in mind because it goes on to say then, Jesus does, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And remember at the end of verse 11, it's receive this saying. Not everybody can receive this saying. And now he's talking about that same idea. There is that third group who can go through life and be okay with not getting married and they can simply serve in a greater capacity in the kingdom of heaven. So, Three lessons from three different kind of eunuchs. Uh, the one famous person who took it literally is Origen, and we can safely say it didn't work out so good for him. Strange. Strange. Now, from here, I think the best thing we can do is step back and draw conclusions about singleness that are helpful and appropriate for us as a church 
so that we can understand singleness better, but we need to go to other texts as well. We, 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 we could do just this, but the Apostle Paul talks about singleness in greater detail, and so I think it would be good to go to venture out a little bit. So what we're going to do now is look at seven conclusions about singleness, seven conclusions about Christian singleness, and we'll look at this text, so keep your finger here if you would, or keep a mark here if you would in Matthew 19. We'll also look at 1 Corinthians 7 in some detail. Uh, we'll also look at 1 Timothy uh, in just a little bit of detail. So three different books of the Bible to, to have a better understanding of Christian singleness. When I say, when we go to the Apostle Paul as well, for those of you who are less familiar to the Bible or need a reminder, um, if Paul in 1 Corinthians is an apostle of Christ Jesus, if he's a legitimate apostle, that means he speaks with the authority of Christ Jesus. So if you're a true apostle, that's why apostleship is such a big deal. Uh, If you really are an apostle of Christ, you speak with his authority. And so when we go to Paul, it's not that he's going to contradict Jesus uh, or go off on, you know, a tangent on his own. If he's speaking apostolically, he's speaking representatively as if it were Christ. That's why I like to say your whole Bible is red letter. If you believe in inspiration, um, it's all from God ultimately, whether Jesus said it on earth or said it through his apostles, it's all equally binding. And so hopefully that will help you keep things in mind. Number one, first conclusion about Christian singleness is different Christians have different callings. Different Christians have different callings. How about back to verse 11 of Matthew 19? He said to them, not everyone can receive this, but only those to whom it is given. So please notice the distinction. There's the not everyone group and there's the only those group. Some can receive this, some can't. Some are called to singleness, some aren't. Different Christians have different callings. He doesn't say one's better than the other. He says some can handle it, some can't handle it. Different Christians have different callings. I realize this is super obvious, but maybe we don't always think that different Christians are called to different things and it's okay. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. He's saying the same sort of stuff. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. The Apostle Paul's more than likely, I'd say 95 to 99.9% a widower because you can't reach Pharisee high status as a Jew in the first century unless you're married. Because the Jews were were insistent, maybe that's a little strong, practically insistent on marriage because their conclusion, the, the reasoning was this. The Bible commands be fruitful and multiply. That's a command from God. And how can you be fruitful and multiply in a godly way unless you're married? And so if you want to reach high status as a spiritual leader, you're going to be married. And so as a Pharisee, the Apostle Paul probably was married, but here he isn't. Most scholars would believe it's because his wife is no longer living. I wouldn't die for that, but it seems to be the case. Verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, but it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, very interesting, very matter-of-fact. I think it's important, actually, for us to just observe the obvious and step back. According to Paul, according to Jesus, in the body of Christ... 
There are people who are called to different things in general, but there are people who are called to different marital statuses. And it's okay. And they don't say, and this is the one that's where all the godly people are. It doesn't do that. I think that's good for Omaha Bible Church and good for all Christians to go, oh, different Christians are called to different things, even when it comes to marital status. Number two, the next conclusion about Christian singleness is that devotion to the Lord is the Christian priority. Devotion to the Lord is the Christian priority. In verse 35, it says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I want to read the verses that come before that, before that in just a moment. But for now, I think we can all agree, number one priority for a Christian is devotion to the Lord. We, we don't become Christians by devotion to the Lord. We co- become Christians by trusting in the Lord's work. But having trusted in His work, we, we want to be devoted to Him. As, as I always and forever emphasize, guilt, grace, gratitude, we're talking about the gratitude. Okay, so I repeat myself a lot, but experts tell me you're going to forget 90% of what I talk about uh, throughout my life. So I emphasize the 10% most important. Uh, and so I'll say it again. God's law and, re- law and requirement shows us our guilt. We don't live up to his standard. So we need God's grace and God's grace is given to us in and through Christ who meets the standard and atones for our standard breaking. So guilt, grace, and gratitude is now why we want to do the right thing, not to be saved, but because we are saved out of gratitude. Single-minded devotion to Christ is the gratitude part. This is what all Christians would want and aspire to. Whether you're married or single, the main thing is the main thing because the main thing is going to last forever. Devotion to the Lord. Now, here's the fascinating thing. I realize you all came to learn lessons from eunuchs. But if if that's not the reason you came today, you may also not realize that you came to learn about this next portion because it's fascinating. This will be worth the price of admission. Fascinating the way the Apostle Paul reasons. He's going to reason along these lines since this world is passing and the only thing that will last is your relationship with the Lord. Keep perspective and single people have the ability to keep that perspective better than married people do. And so if you're single, step into it. If you're married, how about this? Learn from the single people. Because in one sense, they've got a better perspective than the rest of us because they're thinking about eternity and things that will last forever. Now, that's a preview. If you didn't follow me, let's look at the text and hopefully you'll be able to follow me. Fascinating. Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will have worldly troubles. And if you're a married person and that's your life verse... um, we have, a counsel, we have a counseling class for you, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but it's true, right? You will have worldly troubles. And I, uh, I would spare you that, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who... Here's the fascinating part. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. 
Now, I, would, I would caution you to, to not absolutize that verse lest you not be married very long. Okay, <laughs> But in principle, where he's going is, since this, this stuff on this earth isn't going to last forever, there's a sense in which you, you who are married need to think like a single person. Now, again, don't take that out of context. We do have in Ephesians 5 to live with your wife, uh, uh, excuse me, to, to love your wife. We have live with your wife in an understanding way as well. We have other texts. So cults, you can prove anything with the Bible. Cults start that way. So don't take this out of context, but do take it seriously. Devotion to the Lord is number one priority. Singles are in a place where they can do that better than married people. So even if you're married, learn something from single people. Let's keep going now that we're fascinated. At least I am. I hope you are. Verse 30. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment and and just make sure you're on board. When things are going terribly, don't be consumed with it. Don't be mourning, altogether mourning. And when things are going awesome, don't be consumed with it. Have it be tempered. See, where he's driving all of this is the end is coming and these things won't last, even marriage. And so keep a bigger eternal perspective to temper things. He goes on to develop that more where he says, and those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order. Here we're back to that verse we started with a while ago to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Whether you're married or single, ultimate priority is Christ. Okay? Single people, if they're godly, right? There are ungodly single people, but single people, if they're godly, are able to do that in ways the rest of us can't do it. And so there's a certain sense in which we who are married need to learn from them and to a certain degree need to act like we're not married. In other words, realize marriage is good. Jesus talked about that. Don't take take this out of context. But it's not the forever thing, as we'll see. So we can't act as if it's the ultimate. And single people, since they're free, can be a a bit better at doing this. Again, I'm not sure if you're fascinated by the rationale, but I sure am. Really interesting how he, how he reasons there. Ultimate priority is devotion to Christ. Single people are an example to married people about what that might look like. Next one, number three. Singleness is good. Singleness is good. At the beginning of Matthew 19, marriage is good. Not all marriages are good, but marriage is good. Singleness is good. Not all singles are good at honoring Christ, but singleness is good. And this is countercultural. We're going to see it in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 in a moment. But let's think about how countercultural this is. First century Judaism, you get married. 
right? If you, if you want to be godly, by and large, let's not say always and never, but generally speaking, if you want to do what's good, you get married because God says be fruitful and multiply. And how can you do what's good unless you're doing that? And so when Paul and Jesus give a category of good for singleness, they're being religiously and societally countercultural. Not only that, the Romans all but mandated marriage. At this point in time, it's even true that uh, if you were widowed, if you were a widow and your husband died, by law, within two years, you have to be remarried lest you be a drain on the culture or drain on society. So Jesus uh, and Paul, his apostle, countercultural against the Jews, countercultural against the Romans. We would say even today, countercultural against the cults. According to Mormonism, the only way you can achieve highest ranking and status in the third heaven, which is the highest ranking and status, I'm told, is by being married. And I quote, Doctrine and Covenants 131 verses 1 to 3. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. And in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. Well, Jesus says, by way of radical contrast, Matthew 19 only to those whom it is given. Presumably, given by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So, very countercultural. It's good to be single. We could say it's good to be married. It's also good to be single. I should remind you of something else that will maybe be countercultural. Eventually, we are all going to be what? Single. Eventually, we're all going to be single. How do we know this? We have it on good authority. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, when Jesus is confronted by those who don't believe in the resurrection... They give Jesus this, this um, test. And what about this woman who, who kept outliving her husbands? Seven times she outlives her husband. And so they think they have Jesus. In the resurrection, Matthew twenty two twenty eight. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her, but Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Our ultimate identity transcends anything in this world. Our ultimate identity is found in our union with Christ. Eventually, we're all going to be single. So we say things like this in our vows, till death do us part. Now, it is true that we will show up For those of you who are being theologically nitpicky, I'm with you. I am too. It is true. We will go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we as the church are the bride of Christ. And He is the bridegroom. And we will find ultimate perfect satisfaction. But let's remember, marriage is good. Even if people say, or excuse me, 
Singleness is good, even if people say that it isn't. We have it on good authority that it is. It's good because it's freeing. It's good because God says so. It's good because it provides an opportunity. It's not a guarantee for a more single-minded devotion to Christ and His church. I made a list of single people that have really stood out in my life, um, wrote down their actual names, thought it through, pondered it, considered it. I won't read the list of names. Some are here, some are not. Some were single for their whole life that I knew them. Some were single for part of their life. Some were widowed. Some were not. But it's a pretty interesting exercise if you've been in the life of the church very long. It was, it was encouraging to me how amazing, and I'm not overstating it for effect, how amazingly blessed my own family, me personally, the life of this particular church, um, how amazingly blessed we have been through single people. And I'm super, super grateful. I would encourage you, since we're talking about it today, to realize singleness is good. And it's amazing how many good things are done by single people. I even thought, as I was thinking about one person, I thought that person was the the kindest, most generous, giving person I've ever known in my whole life during their time of being single. And not just in my life personally, but in, in the life of the church. It's really amazing how good singleness can be. If I could exhort you and challenge you, if you are single, to not squander your singleness, don't squander your singleness. Um, One single person uh, sent me this message. I thought it was thought-provoking. A godly single person, a mature single person. The reality is every person has been gifted with singleness. Some seasons were just shorter than others. And some use the time well and others don't. I appreciated that. Some use the time well and some don't. My encouragement to you would be use the time well. And if you use the time well in light of 1 Corinthians 7, those of us who are married are actually going to take a play out of your playbook. You're an example for us. Okay, let's move on to number four. This is a quick one, but it's an important one. Number four, singleness is not the place for sex. Singleness is not the place for sex. We've already seen it in chapter 7. I'm not going to go back there, but we've seen it in chapter 7, but I don't want to repeat it, but we have seen it already. I'll go back to chapter 6 because it's what leads into chapter 7. It says in chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He expects us to know this. Do not be deceived. I always like to point out to people, apparently you can be deceived and some are because some will tell you otherwise. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, probably an unfortunate translation for our day because um, it can be so subjective because I'm going to say, well, to me it's sexually immoral and you're going to say to me it's not. Uh, He doesn't define it. It's the word porneia, which is fornication, which is sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. So... Let's be clear on that. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, let's just translate it that way, um, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. 
since we're only talking about sexual things right now, I'm going to jump uh, past the next portion, though it's important. Verse 10 then goes on to say, we'll inherit the kingdom of God. So in other words, I'm going to put my finger there and keep reading. That's not how Christians act. Christians don't act that way. But if we keep reading, this is wonderful. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the church is filled with former, you fill in the blanks, okay? But let's realize that something happened radically in our life and and it's led to new life in Christ and we're supposed to live out of gratitude like we have new life in Christ. And so singleness is not the place for sexual activity. Marriage is the place for sexual activity. It's pretty straightforward in the Bible. Hebrews 13.4 is another text. I referenced it a couple weeks ago. I won't re-reference it. Before we move on, though, by way of encouragement to you, let me say this. This would apply to everyone, but we're talking about singleness. Think about the fall. In essence, what does Satan promise? In essence, Satan promises that you will be happier more fulfilled if you disregard what God says. How's that working out for us? The the reason for all of our pain and all of our suffering and all of the bad things that are happening in the world and the bad things that happen all around us and death ultimately is because of the fall. But in our minds, sinfully, we think we'll find more fulfillment if we don't follow God's instructions. It never ends well. It never ends well. That's the negative way to put it. Positively, I love Psalm 81 when it comes to thinking through God fulfilling our needs. Psalm 81 verse 10, if you just want to listen so we can speed things ahead, but Psalm 81 10 is worth remembering. Psalm 81 10 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It says more, but I want to stop there. When, when we hear those words, we think, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What we tend to think, and rightfully so, he's going to give us law because that's how he introduces the law. And so that would be a good thing to conclude. But here, the psalmist puts the emphasis on the other side of the coin, not on the prohibition, but on the provision. I am the Lord your God who, who, who redeemed you, who rescued you. Therefore, listen to the positive side of the coin, the provision. I love it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. You're expecting, don't do the wrong thing. Instead, I'm the great one true and living God, the redeeming God. And so here's what you do. Like a baby who can't do anything, open your mouth and I will bring fulfillment. I will meet your needs. I'm the all true, uh, the, the, the one true living God who's powerful enough to redeem you. I can meet your needs and I can satisfy you a great, great positive way to think through morality, provision, fulfillment. Number five, the next conclusion about Christian singleness is that freedom exists. Freedom exists. It's remarkable in 19.5, Matthew 19.5, how much freedom there is. Not everyone can receive this. Only those to whom it is given. 
And he doesn't say, and so here's what you should do. Nope. Pretty open-ended. Similarly, in Matthew, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, not to lay any restraint upon you. 28. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. 39. You're free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. So, so the one restrictor is, if you're a Christian and you're going to marry, marry in the Lord. Otherwise, you're free. You're free. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I read the Bible, the more I'm impressed with the freedom. It's not anything goes. God tells us what He wants to tell us, and then it's typically the false teachers or religious leaders or the manipulators who tell us all the other stuff. Instead of saying, this is what the Bible says, this is what it doesn't say, now you're free to make a decision. Oh yes, pray. Oh yes, seek wisdom and counsel. But you're free. Now sometimes that's the very thing that scares us, and so it actually causes us to to, to maybe gravitate toward a cult, toward a dictatorial kind of high-handed leader that says, oh yeah, the Bible has the answer to all those things. Well, if it does, or if it did, then we wouldn't need to pray. We wouldn't need to seek wise counsel. We wouldn't need to go to other people who are older, who've been through experiences, who can help us. In one sense, we wouldn't need the body of Christ. It's impressive to see there's great freedom regarding singleness. It has its benefits, has its drawbacks. Which one should you do? I don't know. I think you should pray about it. Not exactly sure. Maybe that makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it does. But let's make sure that we as the body of Christ help people who are thinking through these issues that there's a lot of freedom. Freedom is scary, but freedom is freeing. Okay, we have, we have two more to go. Number six, the next conclusion about Christian singleness is that mandated singleness is anti-Christian. Mandated singleness is anti-Christian. And that, and that complements number five. Because sometimes we want to say more than the Bible says. Maybe we're well-meaning, but we have crossed the line. Mandated singleness is anti-Christian. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3 is our text. First Timothy 4, 1 to 3 is our text. I doubt this will directly help you in a very applicable way as a single person. Um, it might, but in our context, I doubt it's really going to be this profound light bulb that goes off. Um, but it actually is really important on a broader scale. Um, and in the community we live in, it says, in, and also when people try to tell you what you must do. How about verse 1? Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, and according to Hebrews 1, latter times would be the times after what? Christ's work on earth, right? When He came, lived His perfect life of obedience, died a substitutionary death, was raised from the dead, and ascended. Hebrews 1 has us know that we're living in the latter times. So we've been living in the latter times for a long time. Uh, but th- that's us now, okay? So the Spirit explicitly says, expressly says, during this time we're living in, some will depart from, notice it says, the faith. 
So we're not talking about different denominations who like, who have some different kind of perspectives on things. They'll depart from the faith, the Christian faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are, consciences are seared. Sounds bad? Sounds terrible. There, there, there are going to be times during this time when people will promote demonic doctrines and they have seared consciences and it, they're going to do awful things, presumably in the name of God, presumably in the name of the faith. And so if we're going to just play this out a little bit and not read ahead, which I know you just did, but we'd say, oh, they're going to deny the Trinity because that would be outside of the faith. They're going to deny the, the, the humanity and the deity of Christ. That would be outside of the faith. They're going to deny the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus. I think that would be outside of the faith and terrible and demonic. And then we're surprised at what he says. Verse 3, who forbid marriage. Really? And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Don't add to the Bible. Don't say, well, if you really want to be godly, if you really, really want to achieve high status, this is like the opposite of Mormonism, okay? If you really want to achieve high status, you have to be married. Or if you really want to achieve high status, you can't be married. People who know the truth know that we achieve high status by believing in Jesus, right? We're heirs. We're joint heirs with Him. We inherit with Him. You want to reach high status? Be a Christian. And so we know these things. And so really, it's an undermining of the gospel when these kinds of things happen. So just, there's freedom. There's freedom. Let's move on to the final one and we'll wrap up. Number seven, conclusion about Christian singleness is that contentment isn't always the answer. Contentment isn't always the answer. And I don't really mean that. I'm trying to get your attention. A certain kind of contentment isn't always the answer. Okay? Is contentment a virtue, a Christian virtue? It absolutely is. Old Testament and New Testament. Contentment is virtuous. How about this? 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out out of the world. Be content. Hebrews 13.5, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's virtuous. Jeremiah Burroughs in his little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I would commend to you, says, to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. I'm all on board. Sign me up. Contentment. I'll buy you that book if you want to work on your contentment. So why did I put the point in the outline the way I did? Well, I want to be a little provocative and say, contentment is good. Pursuing contentment is good, whether you're married or single, but we're talking about singleness. Until it's not. Until it's passivity. And sometimes we're well-meaning with singles, let's say, and we buy them the Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs book and we just keep telling them to be content. And, and it may come across as, even if we're well-meaning, 
We want them to be passive. Okay? We want them to give up and do nothing. Even though, even though they have the desire. Think about how crazy it would be if um, I said, well, I'm not going to come to church because I'm content. I'm happy with where I am. And it's a Christian virtue. I know um, Colossians 1 says we're to be increasing in our knowledge of God, but I'm a virtuous, virtuous Christian. I'm content with my knowledge of God. And on the list could go. It's ridiculous. So we're, we're called to do things. We're called to action. We're called to be growing. Or how about this? If being content were absolutized, I think I used that earlier, uh, it, it, out of context, as virtuous, I would never want to learn anything because I'm content with what I know. No one who is single would ever get married. By the way, there would be no married people. I'm happy with where I am. I'm not going to do anything. You wouldn't seek education or improvement in relationships or new friends or a better job or even a haircut. (laughs) I like my hair the way it is, and that's godly. (laughs) So I'm trying to be somewhat silly. Maybe Burroughs was onto something when he called it a mystery. Exactly how does God calling me to action and not be passive relate to being satisfied and content? I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to say pray for wisdom, right? Ask for God's help. But I can give you a little bit of help. I can say we all, regardless of who we are, want to have our unique express first and foremost devotion to Christ and to find ultimate satisfaction in Him. But it doesn't mean we don't do other things. It doesn't mean we don't pursue other things. Some of you have been tremendously helped by Psalm 37.4. I have been. Just when it comes to a general perspective. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And as a wise pastor said to me a long time ago, when you're delighting yourself in the Lord, finding your ultimate satisfaction and contentment in Him to meet your greatest needs, don't be surprised if your heart changes. Again, it's not a science how this works. It's a mystery how this works. But I know it's, it's the right guidance. So let's be careful when we, we, we say, I'm just content that we're not being passive. When we tell people to be content, we're not calling them to be passive. Some of you have, have gotten your finances in order and saved up and come up with a down payment and you've purchased a house instead of living in your parents' basement saying, oh, I'm content, right? It's not virtuous. You've pursued higher education. You've pursued promotion at work. You've wanted to move to a different place. Exactly how God works through all of this, I don't know for sure, and how we can be content and yet want to be taking advantage of the life He's given us. I don't know how it all works and where it stops and where it ends. We just need to be cautious, I think. Many things in my life, including marriage, would not have gotten done if I were passive. God uses means. I don't want to make this all about me, but... um, 
just one illustration. It's hard to make it, use illustrations of other people when it comes to this. I'll never forget the night on 70th and O Street in Lincoln, Nebraska, when a young woman named Molly Armstrong broke up with me and said we were no longer going to be seeing each other. I think in July we're going to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. So I don't know how all that worked out. When was I going to take no for an answer? Eventually, lest her dad come looking for me. <laughs> And I'm, I'm not saying that's the way to do it. But a lot of things happen in life after hearing no, 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 and no. And we say, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. When do we give up? I don't know. Pray for wisdom. It's not a science. It's a mystery. And how can we be content along the way? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's what makes this all so hard. Maybe it's what makes it all so hard. Life is mysterious. Okay, let's end with this. How about some advice to singles? Number one, be content. <laughs> you hopefully, but, I, but not passive. Number two, be serving. You are in a unique position to even be an example to the rest of us. Number three, be merciful. And... I've just been a pastor long enough to know to add that one. Be merciful to the rest of us who don't know the right thing to say to encourage you. And sometimes when we think we say the right thing, we said the wrong thing. Be merciful. We're all called to be merciful. But if you're single, be merciful. Be wise. Seeking counsel. Praying for wisdom. My final one would be be aware of the fact that true fulfillment only comes in Christ. And that would be true for married people as well. Some advice regarding singles to the rest of us. I say remember them. Be thankful for them. Include them. And pray for them. I've been a I've been a non-Christian, I've been a single Christian, I've been a married Christian, I've been a Christian without children, I've been a Christian with children, I've been a Christian who's lost a child. But ever since I've become a Christian, I have been thankful for the different kinds of Christians in my life and in the life of the church, whether they've been single, widowed, married, or divorced. The church is filled with a lot of different kinds of Christians, and I'm super thankful for the diversity, for the glory of Christ, and I hope you are as well. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he and he alone is the one where we can find true, lasting, eternal satisfaction. And so those who are married, help them to look to him ultimately. And those who are single, that they would look to him ultimately. Those who are divorced, to look to him ultimately. And for those who are young, that they would look to him ultimately, regardless of what you bring their way. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go.